Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on June 23rd. June 23rd. 2019. Yes, the day after Michael's birthday. Happy birthday, Michael. And I have to confess, uh, the Mets have just suffered another defeat. I'm recovering. But uh, I'll get by. All right, it's good. I got that out of my system. Glad to hear that. Yeah. We're still recovering from the wedding, actually. We are. We're still cleaning up. Right. But it was fun. Yeah, it was fun. And people keep asking how was it, and I keep saying it was great, and the weather was great, and parties were great, and it couldn't have gone any better. But it's a lot of uh, social contact, which turns out to be uh, tiring. Yes. Mentally and emotionally. Yes. Okay. Yes. Not to mention... All the cleaning up. Yeah. No, we didn't do all of that, but yes. Uh, but in any event, uh, that doesn't mean that we weren't uh, out seeing things and doing stuff this past week. And we went to the movies as recently as yesterday, where we saw Pavarotti. Right. And uh, Pavarotti, of course, being a documentary about Luciano Pavarotti, the great opera singer. Directed by Ron Howard, who's done a lot of very popular movies, and of course was Opie a million years ago on the Andy Griffith Show. And uh, but more to the point, it's been responsible for a lot of popular entertainments. It's not an obscure documentary. It's a very Hollywood-oriented film put together, but again about an opera singer. So, if I can be the interviewer, dear, what do you think? Well, I was not as thrilled as you were. For me, it seemed pretty normal. Yeah. And uh, I guess in retrospect, um, it uh, was very much a Ron Howard kind of thing. Sure. It was a feel-good, uh, not, exa- not exactly hard-hitting, you know, um, secret-revealing, well, well, dark-side, okay. okay, so but here, here's, here's the thing. First of all, let me say... Documentary. Neither of us are opera fans, so we don't no. comment. But having, even having said that, turns out you knew more about Pavarotti... Than I did. So when I'm watching it, I'm saying, oh, he's pretty good. He's really good. He's great. It's one great thing on top of another. It's a little bit of a story. They get into a little detail in his personal life that's a little messy. But what carries you in a way that most documentaries can't is the singing. So they're able to punctuate all these developments in his life with all these wonderful recordings from these live performances. Uh, including great footage from the three tenors that he did with Placido Domingo and Jose Carreras. And even though I'm not an opera aficionado, it's quite moving stuff. Well, but I think that's the key to it. Yeah. What I remember, and it's not, I I know zero about opera and opera singers, okay? But I do remember the general feeling was this guy kind of sold out, that he was, uh, you know, playing the superstar doing these huge concerts, just uh, basically raking in the bucks. Right. Um, and that he was trying to appeal to a broad audience and not trying to, um, I, I guess, further the art of opera sure. uh, per se. And uh, so I think for people serious about opera, uh, you know, he it seemed like uh, he was, you know, not... I, well, I don't really sold know. out yeah, when you put yeah. it you sold out and, and okay. I, um, so and and it's and we do understand that a little bit from the documentary because it is pointed out 
that at a certain point he connects yeah. with Harvey Goldsmith, yeah. who is a rock concert promoter. Right. Okay. Gets him to fill a void left by a cancellation by Bruce Springsteen in London. And, uh, you know, and he is, Goldsmith is able to talk uh, um, Pavarotti's uh, manager right. into getting him Going. to do this. Yeah. And uh, then they're off to the races. Well, but you know what? doing these huge shows. You know, it's all how you characterize it, right? Yeah. And uh, so I, again, I didn't even come at it with the knowledge that you had about him being accused of being a sellout. You know, when you say it, it sounds right. But... Uh, so they, they talked about the same events, but they painted it differently. So instead of saying he's selling out, the, the documentary took the view, well, he's not selling out. He's bringing his art to the masses. And if you read reviews of it and, and critical evaluations of the movie, they're saying that's not bringing art to the masses. What, what you, his responsibility, in their view, was bringing opera to the masses. And you're not bringing opera to the masses if you get there in, this, in these large halls and you sing a couple of opera songs and a couple of popular songs and whatever, that's not bringing opera to the masses. And therefore, it is, as you say, a sellout. So it turns out to be more controversial than certainly I realized. Um, but without that background, uh, again, I enjoyed the movie and because I enjoyed the singing more yeah. than I would have thought. Well, you know, that first three tenors concert, it was at the, what was it, like 1990 World Cup mm -hmm. Uh, in uh, Rome, Rome, in right. the Baths of Caracalla. And that was televised. That was, you know, sure. there was, it's uh, no accident yeah. that uh, that footage was well done and incredibly well, exciting but, but, and moving. Right. Um, it, was, it wasn't but, but somebody's home video here's what they of tell the you. concert. But here's, here's where the movie sets it up and makes it a different experience. First of all, the movie explains that Jose Carreras had just suffered uh, was recovering from cancer. Was recovering from cancer. Yeah. Had a near death experience, right. which you had, which I had no idea. Then it says the concert's put together because the three of them, Domingo, Carreras, and Parati, live in the same building in New York. Right. And you're going like, what? So they have this personal connection, and Parati was kind of communicating with uh, Carreras when he was sick, trying to sort of pump him up, and there were, in a way, it was sort of helping Carreras get back on his feet in terms of performing. And then you also have interviews with Placido Domingo talking about uh, how great Pavarotti was and talking about what a great experience that whole thing was. And he says at one point, you know, you, know, you really know a person when you sing with them, uh -huh. right? So it, it, that's what the movie does. It, it adds a lot of And they were consummate performers. Oh, they, they really... Were, and he even explains at one point that how they're trying... He says at one point, you know, we try to one-up each other. And they go to a clip and he just tells you a little bit, but you can see what he's saying. See, see, see what Pavarotti's doing here. He adds a little flourish. And then we're laughing and see us come back. And we, you know, so it gives we you a different appreciation. Mimic his flourish. Yeah. 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 So, look, I, yeah. I, I would recommend it. Uh, whether it's got Pavarotti exactly right, I can't say. Yeah, we basically went to it because the um, Rotten Tomatoes score was 98% right. for people. Right. Okay. And we're people. 88 or something for critics, but 98 But, that, but that's high, too. I mean, it, it, it is high, but it's probably all people who like Pavarotti who are going to go see it. Anyway, right? it was, uh, um, it's it's so, much higher than anything else we see uh, yeah. in terms of our choices. So, so uh, a little we were, bit of self-selection there. Yes, we like that. But anyway, moving right along. Yes, yeah, so we both found a story which uh, about ancient bagels, which you can't, you can't go wrong with a story about old bagels, really. Right, and so the, the headline in the Times was way back when bagels were tiny. 
And uh, um, the subtitles, Archaeologists Identified Bronze Age Pieces of Dough Rings at an Excavation Site in Austria. So there's a site in Austria that dates uh, to about 3,000 years ago, about 900 uh, BC. And uh, it actually is a place that um, it was some kind of uh, installation and had... They had found, um, what do you call it, uh, um, storage areas, uh, about a hundred different storage areas, just storing different things, um, including, um, you know, cereals, grains, um, human remains, and uh, there were also ovens with these f- tiny fragments of little circles made of finely ground grain. Yeah. Okay. And uh, they seem to be, you know, um, little circles that, uh, but you couldn't find, you know, they couldn't find the end to them. So even how they're made seems a little mysterious. All I know is that the Times has pictures yeah. of what look like old bagels. Yes, and and they're small. but uh, And the Times does uh, recognize that uh, it's rare um, to have any kind of remains of food this old, okay, Uh, for the reason that uh, usually they quickly deteriorate. But there are older examples. There was a ring-shaped bread dating from 12,000 years ago found in Switzerland and uh, some in Italy uh, from about 300 to 330 and even some Viking uh, ring-shaped breads in Sweden dating from uh, almost 2,000 years ago. So uh, it's, um, you know, Interesting to us because uh, it's true, bagels, um, in my mind, deteriorate quickly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we were, we were kidding before. When you said something about old bagels, we know about old bagels. Yes, whenever my parents would visit, my dad would come with a bag of, uh, of bagels. But of course, he bought them, you know, they were a day or two old because he would get a good deal on a day or two old bagel or something like that. And they were old bagels. Yeah, no, Daniel, that's well, what, not it at all. What is it? They were planning ahead. Ah, okay? that's what it was. They were, the, you're they, right, you're right. No, they're bringing bagels to Block Island. On, okay? on the weekend. Right. And he would so, buy them on Wednesday. No, he would buy them on Monday because he's going to be too busy packing <laughs> no, on no, Wednesday. No. He thought they'd okay. run out of bagels. They're going to... He gets all the bagels, like two dozen bagels, <laughs> right, right. All right? Wraps them up. Right. And then by Saturday, I guess, they would take the ferry over to Block Island and uh, we would finally be the recipients of uh, oh, five-day-old bagels in Block Island. And they looked, their heart was in the right place. And the thing is, they were probably real bagels, not the spongy sort of overgrown they were real bagels, round rolls and you know, that we have now. They looked, real bagels would, in fact, taste like rocks at they, that point. They, they looked a lot like this picture in the New York Times. So, uh, <laughs> so we have a fondness in our hearts yes. for old bagels. Right. And uh, so, of course, when we see a story about 3,000-year-old bagels, we identify. We find out when the first everything bagel was, and we'll know we have some specific information. Uh, The NBA draft took place, the basketball draft, which I came home one night to watch Tamsin (laughs) Tamsin watching on the television as if she were wrapped, carried away. You know, I watch it for the fashions. (laughs) What? 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 Those guys. Those guys. I don't know what it is about. I think that basketball players look better in clothes than some of the other athletes. Yeah. Um, But uh, they had amazing outfits. Yeah. All kinds of amazing outfits. Amazing is a nice word for it. Yes. Uh, 
I mean, you you just uh, no, they poop. They're crazy. They looked, loud, they looked great. They're nutty. I they're not always loud. I mean, they're I not. I they're it, uh, you know, you might be more comfortable wearing them to the prom than uh, to work on a daily basis. Uh, but there were like floral brocaded suits and oh, yeah. white suits, and you know, sounds uh, good. All kind of uh, fantastic outfits. Well, it's nice to see these young men dressed up a bit. Okay. All right. So the first two picks were Zion Williamson and, and Jay Morant, and and they were far away considered the, the best prospects. Um, and what, wait a minute, who are those people? Zion Williamson and Jay Morant. Zion Williamson, yeah, I think he's the one who had the white suit on, <laughs> and they compared him to uh, LeBron in his white suit. Okay. Right. Putting fashions aside for just a second, okay. so those are the first two guys, the two best basketball players, the two best prospects in the country. And what's crazy about this is it turns out they played on the same travel team when they were 14 years old, which is, you know, they were in South Carolina. One lived 45 minutes from this travel team's headquarters, the other 45 minutes the other direction. And they ended up on the same team. It wasn't a big deal, a shoe money team or anything like that. What so, are the odds? What are the odds? I mean, I coached East Windsor. What part of South Carolina? Uh, Spartanburg. Mm-hmm. I coached East Windsor basketball boys and girls a little bit for years. Uh, I don't think my team or any other team had two players in any year who were the top picks in the NBA draft. The odds in that are like a zillion to one. Uh, You'd like to think that that team won a lot of games. But you said that there were two other uh, players who were from the same. Well, now you're putting me on the spot. Yeah, well, I I, 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 really... Go ahead. I can't possibly say his name. I mean, R.J. Barrett. R.J. Barrett. That's easy to pronounce. And... Uh, another Canadian, right. Iggy something. Yeah, no one will know. With he's, a B. Yeah, he's in the second round. And, never played. Uh, yeah, so it. they, you know, they've known each other since they were eight. They're in Canada. Uh, they, you know, they know each other's game a little bit, I guess. Hmm. So uh, they'll be there. So it's not, so it Breaking into the Knicks. It happens. And they, they asked poor RJ, is yeah. he ready to carry the Knicks on his shoulders? RJ Barrett. And what did he say? And he just looked at them and said, you know, I haven't even played a single game. How can you even ask me that? That's a very <laughs> so, good response. I think he, he seems a pretty poised uh, young man. There are a lot of people who are high on him, but and yet he was clearly number three, not one or two. But uh, going out of high school and into college, he was considered the best player in the country, honestly. Uh-huh. And that was just a couple of years ago. So, who knows? Well, he indicated strongly he would like to be in New York. Yeah, and he's for, got his wish. For a variety of reasons. But we don't need to go into that here, yeah. do we? Right. So, uh, carbon dating, you were going to go discuss, because we haven't talked about that recently. Carbon dating uh, is a favorite subject because, uh, you know, in history of art, yes. uh, that's, we use it a lot. And uh, in the Times, actually, uh, this was from a little over uh, a week ago, there was a headline, How Art Forgery Sleuths learned to love the bomb. Mm-hmm. The period of nuclear testing gave at least a temporary boost to radiocarbon dating. How can you tell if a painting is a modern forgery? Mid-20th century nuclear bomb tests now may hold a clue. And of course, so you understand that we're all, all living things, including grass, etc., made up of carbon, right? Mm-hmm. Different kinds of isotopes, uh, carbon-12, carbon-13, carbon-14. Uh, some of them are stable. Some of them are not. Carbon-14 is not stable, as they say. So that uh, when you die, okay, 
the carbon-14 in your body starts to deteriorate at a very regular rate. I see. Okay. okay. So that if you can analyze the carbon-14 in anything that was once living, mm -hmm. whether it's a piece of you know charcoal used on a cave painting mm -hmm. um, or whatever, uh, you can figure out the date uh, based on that regular um, diminution of the isotope. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, now I mentioned carbon 12 and 13, uh, you know, carbon 12, 13, 14, they're all usually present in a um, stable ratio. This is where it gets complicated. Okay. But it was complicated during already. the time, yes, right. all right, during yeah. the time of uh, the early mid 20th century, where we begin to have nuclear testing, yeah. all right, um, there, those tests created even more carbon-14 out of the atmospheric nitrogen that resulted, okay? So there's this huge bump in carbon-14, and it changes the ratio between carbon-12, 13, 14. And so you can really, if you can look at things that uh, come about, after that time, they look. Their isotopes look distinctly different okay. than anything before. Right. Okay, and after 1963, we get the ban on nuclear testing. Right. Okay? okay, so the so you can really isolate if you can analyze that uh, makeup. Um, <laughs> you're dozing off. I'm not I'm dozing off. I'm just concentrating. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it allows uh, people to zero in on this particular period okay, okay? so uh, you may be able to analyze say the canvas that is used in a forgery okay and uh, be able to based on the flax okay now, now that, but, 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 it was made but from, you're saying the, if the forgery is done in that period in the 40s it 50s, will or show 60s, up okay okay that's i got you okay all right in a, a very specific way i was wondering way. where you were all right. going all right got um, it now. and uh you know you need only and methodologies have come such a, a a distance that you need teeny you can do these analyses with teeny bits yeah. of what was involved in making the painting now forgers do tricky things like use old canvas yeah. from another period and paint on it but the paint the binder in the paint the oil used yes. in the you know in the paint is not old okay you can't get 16th century oil to use in your forged painting, so they can analyze that uh, and try to, you know, and specifically find okay. how old it is. All right, I got it now. It's a, I feel like I got a so full it's education. this bump, this change in the amount of carbon fourteen. So something good came out of the uh, testing of the nuclear. But devices. you know what's happening? No, what? So even though there was this bump, yeah. As time goes on, the bump is disappearing. I would expect so. Okay, so there won't be this. Uh, clear signature for this period okay but in anyway, it's, it's it's just kind of fun they, they could take a, a sample of the linseed oil remember and you know get back to that original okay carbon 14 um but it has to be something living yeah. it can't be a rock rocks no. were never alive i don't think no call that living i would say no probably <laughs> not uh yeah the Tonys. We, we didn't talk about the Tonys because uh, you took a deserved break last week and uh, we didn't get to it. 
But um, well, we should say that we were bored to tears. But, but so I'm trying to think. You know, I don't think it's enough to say that uh, the Tonys weren't an interesting show. The question is why. Okay, I mean, <laughs> you, it's not you enough to, make... to say. It, it, you it, want to really grill them. No, over I want the to be. No, I want to be constructive. Look, James Corden's pretty good. We got no problem with James Corden. That's not the problem. But you know, they don't seem to think hard about this. Let me let me give you an example. Okay. Well, the, look, the first. They don't seem to think hard. No. Dan, think about what you're saying. They don't seem. They to thought think... a lot. No, they didn't. They thought the wrong things. Well. Maybe, but first of all, there's one problem that they sort of got and they sort of didn't. I mean, Corden gets on at the beginning and says, you know, television is not like theater. you got to experience things live. They don't show up on television. And then they prove the point over the next three hours. because Nothing looked good. No. They're doing these dance numbers, which look great in person. And we were thinking, Kiss Me, Kate looks great in person. And everybody does that. And it looks like zero. I mean, Yeah, it, we had seen it. Yeah. It almost brought me to tears. It yeah. was so fantastic. And it looks and like on nothing. the TV, it was completely... But, it, like, but the same thing was true of Eight Too Proud. The same thing. The prom, the prom looked like, like High School Musical or something like that. Like, what's the point of that? So it makes no impression. I mean, I'm saying to myself, you're better off having people sing. Um, maybe... When I think of memorable moments in Tony's, the things that other people think are memorable moments, the first thing everybody always mentions, I will tell you, even though you hear things about Avid and stuff like that, the first thing is Dream Girls, and I am telling you that I'm not going, by Jennifer Holiday, was sung on the Tony's, and that's the moment in the Tony's everybody remembers. That is not a happy song. That is not a production number. Right. Okay? That is one woman singing her heart out. Right. And that's what people... You hear know. that and you guys say, right. i got to get me some of that. Right. And people talk about that. So, I don't know. I think they're going in the wrong direction. there was not one moment but, like that. But there were some things that were, you know, um, reachable just if they thought about it. Let me see. We saw Jeremy... Jeremy Pope was nominated for two things. He was nominated for Choir Boy and he was nominated for Ain't Too Proud. You would think at some point in the telecast, Someone would acknowledge Jeremy Pope. What if they had had an award given by Jeremy? What if they had him come up to give an award and people saying, here's this young guy who's nominated for these no, two shows? No, you had to have him sing. What, what? Well, he did sing. You had to have him do something. He, he did stuff. He, a he little smidge. You did a little smidge. But the point is, that should have been recognized. They, they had... Um... So this is interesting. Yeah. Choir Boy, um, they referred to and they gave some snippets of, some right. little performances of. Right. And a lot of people say... That's the performance that did the best. Yes. But of course, Choir Boy closed quite a well, while it's like they, ago. They're out of their minds. No, they, no, they knew. They knew what they were doing. They right. knew that they the, gave Choir that Boy, was a format that they, would work. That but, would but they gave Choir Boy more time people. than anything else because they had they spoke about it like a dramatic show and then they quietly showed a scene, you know, like in, in a way that they had no precedent for considering anything else because they liked the scene. But it's closed. You're right. It doesn't make any sense. Oklahoma and Kiss Me Kate, we were mentioning this before, they made no connection between Oklahoma and Kiss Me Kate. Oklahoma was written in the 40s, you know, Roger and Hammerstein, and it's a certain theme about uh, uh, America, rural America. Kiss Me Kate is, is Cole Porter's response to Oklahoma in the late 40s, all right? And now they're, they're competing, and one's considered more woke than the other. They had that debate in the 40s, 70 years ago. and No one makes that connection between these two shows. No, being Daniel, late. no one oh. wants to make that connection. Why? Oh, I because so. nobody's interested. The old people like us who know those musicals and know about those connections already went to see that stuff. Oh, okay. Here's they're the, trying to engage a new well, audience. Well, they're failing. Here's what they should have done. I'll, my last suggestion, okay? okay. And, and it's not because I have love for the show. Okay? To Kill a Mockingbird is the closest thing to Hamilton that has existed for since Hamilton. 
Kakilla Monitor is bringing people in like crazy. It's got unbelievable sales. It's easily the most popular thing on Broadway and will be for years. That was not in the Tony's show at all. What they did is instead, number one, they didn't nominate it. They nominated Gary instead, which was crazy. A show that nobody liked, that nobody went to see, and that closed two weeks after the Tonys. Uh, and yeah, it's as if the Tonys are saying, we should like this. They're saying, well, this is new you know, theater. It's experimental. This is more cool. I mean, you could have built, you could have done a soliloquy from To Kill a Mockingbird. You could have done a soliloquy from Network. There are so many things they could have done that made that show more compelling. Uh, all right, I'm, I'll stop there. I mean, it's just a huge opportunity lost. So, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it was a little bit... You're right. The, the whole premise was, <laughs> you know, just ass backwards. Yeah. Uh, the, these musicals do not really work. Experiencing these musicals doesn't work on TV. Yeah. So, let's do it. So, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. And and we have some other stuff that, you know, maybe, uh, you know, has a good... It's consistent with our social agenda. And But was it a good theater? Who the heck knows? Uh, and the answer is uh, not really. So, um... We skipped over this. You should talk about this. I, I will get to that. You I know, think we're up to that. We're up to that. You're tromping all over me today. All right, all right. We're, 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 the Mets lose, and it really destroys I, I am upset. everything. All right. Uh, well, okay, uh, some books you were going to talk about first. Yes. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. It was, let me, you know, can I say something in my defense? What? It was a bad loss. They were losing all game. Whenever DeGrom pitches, the relief pitchers give it up. It's brutal. It's brutal. All right. Go ahead. Um. Okay. Wait, do you have suggestions for them? Because you have suggestions for the Tonys. You must have I do, but they're too inside baseball. Go ahead. All right. <laughs> really? For this crowd? Yes. This is a very inside baseball crowd. Not Come on, inside give me one suggestion. One suggestion? Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't pitch Seth Lugo two innings, uh, two games out of three. That's a suggestion. You pitch him more or less? Well, you, less. You can't do it. Okay. Very few people can. Okay. All right. Um, anyway, so it's summer, and I'm doing my summer reading, okay? I'm really enjoying reading, because I'm not reading about Carbon-14, uh, usually, yeah. ex- with the exception of this week. Um, so uh, I grabbed this book and, um, you know, put it on my Kindle, uh, because it seemed interesting. It's called Cornelia, First Woman of Rome, by Dan Armstrong. And so, of course, I'm intrigued by this because it's really a study of a very famous Roman uh, mother, mother of the Gracchi, uh, Tiberius and Gaius. What the heck are you talking about? <laughs> mother of the Gracchi? It, yeah. I what mean, does that even no, mean? No, everybody knows this painting uh, by Angelica Kaufman where Cornelia is uh, looking at some lame Roman matron show off her jewels and Cornelia is pointing to her children and saying, these are my jewels. Um, oh. She's uh, famous for being such a noble woman. Both of her sons die uh, and as as a result of Roman politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but she's willing to sacrifice them for the good of the state, etc. So she's uh, an important symbol of uh, Roman motherhood. And, uh, you know, I teach that painting. Um, so, you know, I was curious to know a little bit more about the story. It's a historical novel, but it did have a lot of 
truly historical details. And I got to know Gaius and Tiberius and Roman politics of the period very intimately. All right, so I'm trudging through this, feeling very noble, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to understand this for the good of my classes and everything I'm going to bring to my students. And all of a sudden, Gaius and Tiberius actually have a sister, okay? And actually an older sister in the Angelica Kaufman painting, Younger, as she's portrayed as younger, um, but she is the narrator of the story. Okay, these are her memoirs about everything that happened with her famous family, um, and uh, all of a sudden the story just veers off into Sempronia. That's her name, Sempronia's sexual awakening. Okay, yeah. she she has allegedly an unhappy marriage she you know ends up killing her husband or perhaps killing her husband and she meets a new friend who is a woman who opens up a whole world to her according to dan armstrong of sexual delights i mean it couldn't be more bizarre you're reading along this really sort of dry historical novelization and all of a sudden we have you know sex with a capital s mm. i i was just mystified yes. well, totally mystified and it reminded me of another book i read by elizabeth gilbert you know the eat pray love lady right, right, right. okay and uh, she wrote a book called signature of all things i maybe even talked about this on the podcast before and it starts out being about the the history of american gardening yeah. okay and horticulture and all of a sudden veers off uh, with this woman who's fascinated um, with, uh, you know, growing things, suddenly becomes fascinated with oral sex. And I just said, really? Really? Um, so I don't know if this is a trend. It sounds disappointing. It, I mean, how many times, I think all of us can identify with having been fascinated you know, by a historical it's not that I'm novel. Approved. I'm not against books, you know, sex as a story, but... You know, I wasn't anticipating this, and it seemed like a big Nothing conflict. ruins. But I'm also no, reading... Hold on. Nothing but, ruins a good historical novel by too much, like too much, like veering into too much sex. I mean, irksome. I'm sorry. Go ahead. What okay. were you going to say? <laughs> and I'm also reading uh, a book recommended on the NPR. Yeah, the NPR. Um, Conviction. Oh, I just saw a review of that in, in the Wall Street Journal. It looked interesting to me. It did? Yeah. By Denise Mina. And how is it? Mira. Mina? Mira. Did you finish Mina. it? It's I, Mina. I haven't finished it yet. M-I-N-A. I'm holding off finishing it because it's very exciting. I'm going to be sad oh, yeah. when no, it's no, done. No, they told a little bit no. about the story. Yeah, I'm enjoying it a great deal. Give, so give that's me one, conviction. Give me one line of the story because it will take, get me back to it. What's the book about? It's about a murder. It's about oh, oh, the whole right, family right, is oh, out right, on a boat, right, right, right. and the boat sinks, and everybody's she has, dead. She has a, a past and, that she doesn't disclose to her husband. Right, so, yeah. All, all, the, you know, all these things start the uh, husband unraveling. Leaves. And, her husband uh, leaves with a friend. She takes up with it. Oh, I got it. Yeah. You know, it's about the rich right. and well, famous. When you finish, should, should I read you know, it? It's got some travel porn because you go to... Uh, Venice, and you go to uh, a fabulous resort in Scotland, and yeah, all that, these that doesn't mean anything to me. Should I read this book or not? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, okay, I, I, you don't usually go for those action books. No, I just, you know, mystery thriller. There's, there's no books. E- no economics in it. Is that what you're telling me? Um, it is very, you know, little economics. But but uh, 
back to more sobering stories, the death of Paul, Molly O'Neill yes. uh, this week, who uh, died of cancer. Liver cancer. Liver cancer. Yeah. She was 66. And uh, she's known to us partly because uh, th- that's one of the books uh, that were in your parents' house. Well, let's, let's yeah. not. She's a food writer. She's a food writer. Yeah. And famous for a book uh, called The New York Cookbook that came out in 1992. And it really went around to famous restaurants, mom and pop bodegas, um, delis, and uh, all corners of New York City, no matter how humble, uh, trying to, you know, tease out what are the secrets of these various delights all over the city? And uh, really before a lot of other people like um, uh, Bourdain and Jonathan Gold in L.A. Uh, made really popular this uh, searching out the more humble foods. Uh, she said uh, she celebrated all kinds of cooks and articulated very clearly that cooking is what brings us together. For 20 years, Molly says, I tried to tease the extraordinary from the mundane. And uh, so it's um, a sad loss. Yeah, no, I'm looking at the book now. It's like, uh, you know, to bake an honest loaf. This whole section has subsections called the Brick Oven Brotherhood, Where to Buy a Good Loaf, Stalking the Perfect Pizza Pie, To Make a Soft Pretzel, A Bagel is a Bagel. You know, you get the idea. Yeah, there was a time when people thought uh, great food had to be fine food mm-hmm. in fancy restaurants, okay? And she was part of that whole movement of teasing out extraordinary food in less than fine establishments. Yeah, and, I'm looking at this. And now thing. we think it's normal. Now we're all searching for the yeah, whole It is the funny. World. I'm looking at, she says something, a little something sweet. The first chapter is called Edmunder's Blackout Cake. When I grew up, when I grew up, my relatives would debate the quality of Edmonton's blackout cake. That mm-hmm. was a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and she was also, uh, I was known to me because her brother, uh, Paul O'Neill, played for the Yankees, played for Cincinnati Reds. She's from Cincinnati, where Paul mm-hmm. grew up and started for the Reds before he I came like to New York. I feel like there was some article in the paper a hundred years ago where that came up. She wrote about it. She yeah. wrote about what it was being, uh, being... So it was in the sports section of the New York Times. Yeah. She's writing about baseball. She's writing about Paul. Yeah. And that was kind of. Funny. I think she had five brothers, and Paul's the one who made it to the major leagues. All right. Yeah. All right. So you had. And another... I also was noticing the death of Alan Brinkley, yeah. leading historian of 20th century America. And uh, he died. He was the son of David Brinkley. Right. As in Huntley and Brinkley. Which people, I'd like to think people remember Huntley and Brinkley. They, they, they were the dominant. A news team. I mean, they competed with Walter Cronkite. They were on Channel 4. Cronkite was on Channel 2. NBC and CBS. And they were, for years, the leading uh, news uh, commentators. Correct? So he sadly died of uh, frontal temporal dementia. Complications. Mm -hmm. uh, Frontal temporal dementia. um, Which, uh, you know, is uh, a terrible... um, I don't know if you call it a disease or what you call it, but... uh, really seems to hit people at a fairly young age. And, uh, and as you know, my friend uh, Nancy Ferguson suffers from that. And so this is another uh, terrific loss. He's interesting because he was born in Chevy Chase. He's interesting to me because, of course, I'm from the area of Chevy Chase, near Chevy Chase. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
he not only was he born the same day, okay, and in the same hospital as Frank Rich. Right, the critic. The, uh, the critic. The great theater and, critic. And uh, yeah. they said they both, uh, they lived uh, near each other. They were lifelong friends in a kind of a small Jewish enclave mm. in Chevy Chase. Right. Uh, you don't think of Chevy Chase as very Jewish oh, at That's, that's all. why it was a small enclave. Yeah. And uh, he went, yeah. Alan Brinkley, went to Landon, right. uh, a school that is the kind of brother school to the high school I went to, Holton Arms. Uh, so occasionally there would be get-togethers and, you know... You missed uh, it. He's too old That would be with you. the Landon right. boys. Yeah. He would have been before well, my Landon time. Landon boys were probably a tough group. It's interesting that he was Jewish at Landon because I thought that the Landon boys were mostly Catholic. It was, I forget. Oh, that's no, Georgetown, no, no, no. Yeah. Georgetown Prep was Catholic. Yeah, no, 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 no. Georgetown Prep. Um, my mistake. And, uh, and he also went to Princeton. So he mm. went from Landon to Princeton. I went from Holton to Princeton. That's, you know, you separated like, by just two right. years. Yeah. Uh, but interestingly enough, he ends up being a professor, an associate professor, assistant professor at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And he's super popular. Okay? There are lotteries to get into his classes. Mm -hmm. And guess what? They deny him tenure. Because he was too popular. He was too popular. <laughs> okay? He, um, uh, his popularity rendered him suspiciously unrigorous. In the jealous eyes of uh, the tenured professors, yeah. you know, he was on television uh, occasionally, uh, etc., and uh, kind of uh, renewed the debate over the role that teaching ability rather than scholarship should play in uh, uh, senior faculty. Uh, so. Harvard uh, turns him down for tenure. Uh, he's snapped up by um, MIT. the City University oh. of New York, oh. and then he ends up at Columbia. Oh. Yeah, he did uh, all right for himself. He did all right for himself. But how funny is that? That yeah. uh, you know, they are rejecting, basically rejecting, a good instructor. Well, all these obituaries that we've been talking about uh, appear on the same day in the New York Times. And the person who was the most famous, I feel confident saying, at the, at the apex of his popularity is a third individual whose name was Charles Reich. Charles Reich died at the age of 91, wrote a book that was published in 1970 called The Greening of America. And the, the, it appeared first in sort of uh, uh, in, the, in New Yorker magazine, or at least a lot of it did. Uh, and it became enormously popular. And the theory of the greening of America was that, uh, let me do this quickly, that there were three states of consciousness. First, the nation's, the national consciousness, the nation's early self-reliance. Two, the conformism of the New Deal. And three, what we were now experiencing in 1970, an unshackling from the stifling moral constraints of the 1950s, focusing on spiritual fulfillment. In other words, he embraced the counterculture and pronounced that the world was going to counterculture. And all these hippies were the harbinger of things to come in the population as a whole. There would be a rejection of materialism and embrace of flower power. That's where the country was going. And for a brief time in 1970, people believed it. Now, no one's going to believe this now because they say, what? <laughs> but I'm telling you, People believe this. I was, I was in high school. They were teaching us the greening of America. They were saying that uh, this is where it's going. This is what you're heading for. 
Uh, and some of us are going, really? Is that that clear? And that's what they said. And it turns out that notwithstanding the enormous popularity and acceptance of that book in the early 70s, uh, he was wrong. Uh, he was completely uh, wrong. Um, they have a quote here from a cultural critic, Thomas Hine, in 2007, who said that Reich's mistake was to interpret minor transient phenomena as bellwethers of permanent positive chains. Uh, he said, for example, bell-bottoms were a way of expressing personal freedom and a comic attitude toward life. He seemed to think that people would be wearing bell-bottoms forever. And they didn't. So um, uh, it's one of these weird things where something caught on. It was a tremendous phenomenon. Everyone accepted it for about 15 minutes. And now they're going, uh, oh, no, I guess that guy was really off. And he ended up completely forgotten. I don't think you hear Charles Weiss's name very much anymore. Yeah. But I, I can't really overstate how well-known he was and how accepted that theory was. Um, okay, well... I think that's, that's about it. all we have for today. I'm going to go and see if we have any uh, two-year-old bagels, at least, somewhere <laughs> to nibble on. Yeah. Maybe we shouldn't eat them. Maybe, you know, someday they'll be, someday they'll be part valuable. of yeah. uh, somebody's archaeological dig. I mean, it, it is kind of funny to think about uh, how people will go back and look at books like that, look at trends like that, look at, you know, remains in people's refrigerators and reconstruct a whole society that never happened. Uh, look, I will tell you, if you, you talk to anybody over a certain age, I don't know what that age is, maybe it's over 50, maybe it's over 60, you say Greening of America, they know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, and yet, and yet, after that, nobody. Nobody. Uh, yeah, so uh, we'll see you next week. All right. This on is Tamsin, Tamsin Granger. Dan Abuhoff. Signing off. On Tamsin and Dan, week. read the paper.